We are continuing our series, Womb and Board, and we are excited about this. It's, a, it's our Advent series leading the way into Christmas, and we, yeah, we're thinking about the Christmas story. I mean, I was, uh, Silas, my youngest son, uh, came up to me a couple of days ago, and he says to me, Dad, you know, you know all those Christmas movies that are on TV? I said, yes. He's like, you know, a sleigh breaks down or reindeers are lost, or Santa can't make it to Christmas, and uh, somebody's got to save Christmas, and he's like, every single movie is the same thing. I was like, once you've seen one of them, you've seen them all. It's all the same. Um, I said, you are, you're right, you're right. And I think, I think sometimes we feel that way about the Christmas story. It's like, we, we've heard it, we've done it, it's, uh, you know, every year we talk about it, uh, but there's so much beauty and depth in the Christmas story, and part of what we're doing in this series is looking at the story behind the story. There's many kind of micro stories that led the way to this macro story that we celebrate every Christmas. And, and so we're looking at uh, the inappropriate biblical stories of four scandalous women who delivered the deliverer, who made the way for Jesus. And it's based on uh, the genealogy in Matthew, and a genealogy is just a list of long names that we usually skip over in your Bible. You open to the book of Matthew, the beginning of your New Testament, and you're all excited because it's like the New Testament. This ought to be awesome. And you open it, it's just a list of names. You're like, this sucks. Uh, but if you look underneath the surface, uh, there's some incredible stories uh, that Matthew is drawing in that he's wanting you to see the whole uh, God story that's, that's happening there. And so we're looking at four women that are mentioned uh, in the genealogy of Matthew. And this is how it goes. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And so last week we talked about Tamar and how messed up her family was. Um, you know, I had someone come and say, I didn't know if there was a more messed up family than mine, but I think Tamar takes the cake. She's a... That was a crazy story. Um, so we got Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And now, I am, because we have only four weeks, we're looking at this, and there's five women in the genealogy, uh, we're skipping uh, the story of Rahab. Uh, and Rahab was another prostitute, or uh, like Tamar, and I'm like, this, this kind of feels the same as last week. So uh, just times last week by two, and that's kind of the sermon that you'd get if we were talking about Rahab. Uh, so Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. And so we'll stop there. It keeps going there, but that's a genealogy. And the, the reason that people would write a genealogy, and it doesn't make sense now, but it, it established credibility and identity to the person they were trying to highlight. You know, in our culture, we would look at, you know, what you do for a job or the, uh, maybe the degree you got when you went to school, and we would look at those things and say, hey, that's my identity, or that's where I get credibility. Uh, I'm worth something because of this. So that's the role that a genealogy played. And why Matthew's genealogy is, is quite incredible is because it includes women. And if you, were trying to, if you were trying to prove somebody's stock or worth in that culture, you would talk about the men, right? And that's not because the Bible promotes patriarchy. We talked about this last week, but that's because that's the cultural backdrop in which the Bible is written. Um, so he includes women, which should be the first 
sign that we should, we should pay attention, like he's doing something different here, what's, what's going on? And then he includes foreigners, which was a big no-no. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and he's bringing in people that were non-Jews, uh, non-Israelites, into the story. And then he includes two prostitutes, which I've mentioned, uh, and sorry, what is he doing? And so if you're trying to prove your stock, if you're trying to uh, convince somebody of Jesus' credibility and identity, he kind of went a roundabout way of doing it. But I think he's trying to tell us something. And so last week we looked at Tamar, and we talked really about why Jesus would include these characters in the genealogy is I think because he wants us to know that nobody is outside of being in the genealogy of Jesus. Nobody is outside of being in the family of Christ. And no matter your story, and Matthew throws these stories in because this is God's story. And no matter your story, and I don't know each of your stories, but God invites you into his story. And, and, and sometimes we disqualify ourselves and think there's no way that God could love me. There's no way that God wants a relationship with me. There's, there's no way that God can redeem this or turn this around. And Matthew's genealogy is here to tell us that the good news of Jesus includes all of us and invites us all to be part of God's redemptive story. That's the Christmas story. So we looked at Tamar last week, and this week we're looking at Ruth. And so to give you a little bit of the back, backdrop for the book of, or the, the person of Ruth, uh, the story of Ruth takes place at the time of the judges. And so there's a period in, um, in the Old Testament before the time of the kings. Before King Saul came, there was a time of the judges, and the judges were ruling. And, uh, and you can read about that in the book of Judges in your Old Testament. But this is what it says about that time. It says, In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Everybody did right in their own eyes. I mean, I read that and I'm like, that's not just the story of thousands of years ago. That's like the story of today. Everybody does right in their own eyes. That's, that's part of my story. That's part of your story, that we, we do what we think is right. And particularly in our culture, our Canadian culture of tolerance, uh, people just do whatever they think is right. And anything is right, unless you tell me that I'm wrong, then you're not right. Right? That's, uh, that sounds right, right? That's, uh... So that's kind of the culture we live in. Everybody does right in their own eyes. Uh, do whatever you want. Just don't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong and we can all get along and be okay. Uh, and so the tragedy for Israel at this time is the same tragedy for you and me. It's the same tragedy that we live in in our world, that people uh, just run their own lives and do what they think is right instead of looking up to God and what God thinks they look around and just say they compare themselves to others and, um, you know, we, I'll do, I want what they want, I'll do what they do, uh, and we just use each other as the benchmark instead of looking to God as the benchmark for how we should be living. So this is the, the cultural backdrop of the story of Ruth. And if you were to go and look over Israel's story simply is just God bails the nation of Israel over and over and over and over again. Why? Because he made a promise, and God does not go back on his promises. He made a covenant promise with Israel that you will be my people, that you are going to re represent me to the world. And here's the crazy uh, thing about God being sovereign, being king, and uh, ultimately being in control. Regardless of what Israel did and which turns the story took, God actually used all of those twists and turns in the story to still use Israel to bless the world. It's the crazy thing about God. And it just encourages me, and it should encourage you, that no matter what twists and turns your story has taken, you're not beyond God using it to actually be a blessing. 
So right in the middle of this dark time, when everyone was doing what they wanted, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, God was already decorating for Christmas. He was getting ready for Christmas. When Israel had lost faith in God, when people were convinced that God wasn't active anymore, that God was irrelevant, that those stories that their ancestors told them maybe weren't true, and they, you know, God was still at work preparing a way for Christmas. And he used two uh, very interesting people in the midst of this time to actually weave his story into uh, what was happening. Uh, So there was a woman who was angry with God that she declared to the people in her own town that God has abandoned me, that God has forsaken me. When I look at my circumstance, when I look at my life, I don't see any evidence of God in how my life is unfolding. And there was another person in the story. There was a man who saw no evidence of God's faithfulness when he looked around at the nation of Israel, but yet he remained faithful to God. So they saved, these two people saved and set the table for Christmas. And this story is found in the book of Ruth, and this story takes place in the time during the history of Judges when everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. So here we go, Ruth chapter 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land of Israel, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. So Moab was east of the Dead Sea. There's a famine in Israel. They decide to leave Israel, go over to Moab. Ruth 1, uh, verse 2, it says this man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were, and honestly, I can't pronounce their two sons' names, so we'll just leave it. It's not really that important anyways. Uh, they're just two, two kids, two sons. Uh, and so this is the beginning of the story. Naomi, Elimelech, they're leaving Bethlehem, and they have to go settle in Moab because of the famine. These sons need to be married. The only problem is they're going to Moab. And according to their Mosaic law, the, the law that God gave Moses in the Old Testament, they weren't allowed to marry foreigners, not because God was against interracial marriage, but because at that time, marrying into somebody's story meant that their story became your story. And God wanted to be the only God. And so if they were to marry into other cultures who had multiple gods, and you can read Israel's story and know that this is true, when they did that, uh, they adopted many gods. And so God wanted a people that would represent him well, right? And so they were going to Moab. They needed to find a wife. And I guess, you know, they just kind of ignored God's laws and said, you know, we're going to do as the Moabites do. And they went to find a wife. So their story became... Uh, the Moabite story and the Israelite story kind of came together here at this point. Uh, so time goes on. Elimelech dies. And now it's just Naomi and her two sons and their two wives, her two daughter-in-laws. And then the oldest son dies. And then the youngest son dies. And so now you have Naomi, her two daughter-in-laws, and that's the only family that she has left in their Moabites. Now, it's a tragic story. And we can just pause for a second and sympathize with Naomi on what that would be like if you lost a spouse, been around somebody who's lost a spouse, lost a child, that's a tragic thing. You know somebody who's lost a child, it's a tragic thing. This is the world that Naomi now finds herself in, and the only family that she has were Moabites that her sons married. Naomi decides that God's against me, that God's cursed me, and she decides to leave Bethlehem or to leave Moab and go back to Bethlehem. 
She says to her daughter-in-law, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to have to do this, but I need to go back to my own people. I'm all alone here. Um, don't follow me. You know, you have a full life ahead of you. God's obviously abandoned me. Just let me be. So one daughter says, okay, you know, if that's what you want, then that's fine. And the other daughter-in-law says, I'm going to stay with you. And this daughter-in-law's name is Ruth. So Ruth, one of the names in Jesus' genealogy, a Moabite woman. So there's the beginning of the scandal in, in Matthew's genealogy. She's from Moab. So, and this is a mark against her. The tribe of Moab originated as descendants of Lot. If you go all the way back into Genesis 19 in the Old Testament, uh, the, the Moab was, were descendants because of the sexual relations that Lot shared with his two daughters. Okay? So, yeah. Messed up again. Incestuous beginnings for the Moabite tribe resulted in bad blood between the Israelites and the Moabites. And so, if you go back into Ruth's history and her story, she's from a broken family. She's from a, a family that the Israelites would not put a whole lot of stock into. She's from a family story that she would probably rather not talk about. Don't ask me. Moab was excluded from interactions with the Israelites because they were unwilling to assist God's people when God's people came into the promised land. And so they experienced religious exclusion. Okay, so they had a broken family. They were excluded from God's people. And they had this reputation that Ruth inherited that she wouldn't, had, she wouldn't have been allowed to associate with Israelites. So here's the main character in our story. Broken family, been excluded, and she has a reputation that probably nobody wants to be around, especially the Israelites. And now she's married into this family, and she's with Naomi. And this is a very dangerous situation for Ruth to decide that she's going to stay with Naomi. It's a big deal. Because she's going to be a foreign, uh, she's going to be a Moabite in a foreign land, and she's a woman, and she has no husband, and this means she has no rights. And this is what was before Ruth. And one of the most beautiful passages in ancient literature, we read this. This is Ruth's response to Naomi. When Naomi says, you don't have to come with me, Ruth says, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. In the New Testament, this type of love is referred to as agape love, this, this covenantal type of love that is beyond circumstances, beyond feelings. It, it's this, this covenanting that regard, no matter what, I'm with you. This is why sometimes at weddings you'll, you'll hear this passage referred to because of this, uh, this covenantal element to it. In other words, she's saying, Naomi, I'm going with you. Ruth, the young Moabite widow, and Naomi, the older Israelite widow, make their way back to Bethlehem. And so the people in the town began to talk. What's, what's Naomi doing here? What happened to her husband? Who's this Moabite woman that's with her? You can imagine the gossip train that's happening in the small town of Bethlehem where everybody knows your name. Anybody grew up in one of those small towns? Right, I remember, so I, I just had, I remember growing up in a small, t small town, like 3,000 people, and I remember a deer uh, ran into, ran into my, the truck I was driving, uh, and I mean that literally, I didn't, I didn't hit the deer, let's just be clear, I was not, uh, the deer hit me, the back of the truck, okay, and I, 
got home about 20 minutes later, and my dad said, so a deer hit your truck, hey? I said, how did you know that? He's like, well, I was at the Air and Inn. I was at the restaurant. Some guy said, your son got hit by a deer. And like, it took 20 minutes for it to circulate. <laughs> and that's just like the G-rated story. So you can, you can imagine like when like real juicy stuff comes up in, the, in a small town, just right? Uh, so this is, they, they, they come in. Everybody's talking about Naomi, Naomi, Naomi. And then, uh, and then they go probably at some point, and they say, you know, Naomi, where have you been? What, what happened? And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. What does Mara mean? Mara means bitter. Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. Why is she bitter? Well, she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? I don't know if you've ever experienced these moments in your life when you feel like God is out to get you, to get your family, to get your happiness, to get your health, to, where nothing seems to be going right. And so here's Naomi in that type of world. There is no God. But even if there is a God, I don't think God knows my name. There is no God. But even if there is, I don't think God hears my prayers. I don't know why, but me and God aren't on good terms. You know, this, this is where Naomi is at. And I think many of us find us, ourselves, in that similar place in our lives where, you know, if there is a God, I don't know what happened. He obviously doesn't care about me. So in that moment, Naomi is this microcosm of the larger story of Israel. And what I would, I would also say the larger story of humanity, of you and I, and the reality that life has all sorts of curveballs that we don't plan for, that we don't want. And part of our human tendency is to turn and point the finger at God and say, you know, it's God's fault. Mara, call me bitter. And maybe that's your name. Maybe if we, we sat down and we shared stories that you'd say, you know, don't call me whatever your name is, call me bitter because this is my story. So this is Naomi. Now at this time, it was barley season. And you know, it seems like a minor point, but it's an important turning point in the story because uh, landowners had acres and acres of land and they sent their servants to harvest the land. And the, back in the Old Testament law, it said that... Uh, that you could only harvest your land one time. And the reason that they did that is because whatever was left after that one harvest, the poor and the widows were able to come and gather the crop. This, is, was, way, this was God's way uh, in the ancient world of taking care of the, the poor and the widows was to make sure that those landowners wouldn't just take everything from their own crops, but they would leave some leftovers that were available for the poor and the widow. And so you have Ruth and Naomi, poor, check, widow, check. So Naomi says to Ruth, I need you to join the poor and the widows because that's what you are. Pick up what you can. We can either sell it or we can use it for food so we can survive. So Ruth goes to one of these random fields. And this is very dangerous because Ruth is a Moabite woman without a protector, without a husband in a foreign land. She has no protector and it just so happens she picks the property of a man named Boaz. Everybody say Boaz. 
So we find out later that Boaz is actually a distant relative of Naomi's husband who has passed away, but we don't know that yet at this point in the story. So Boaz goes out, in the field, goes out into the field. He sees this foreign woman with the other Israelite women, and he asks, who is this foreign woman? Who is she? And the story had circulated, and, and he finds out that this is Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Um, and here's what he says to Ruth. I know everything that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. Now listen to this. This is unprecedented at this time in Israel's history. When everybody was ignoring God, doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes, Boaz says this, May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. In other words, Boaz believes in this unbelieving world that God is a God of honor. In a time in Israel when everyone had given up on God, Boaz stands as a man of faith in God that believes that if I honor God with my life, that at some point, in some way, God will actually honor me if I choose to walk in honor towards him. He he says straight up to his servants at this point, don't harm her, don't molest her, leave her alone, Uh, make sure that she gets more than enough food. She's an honorable woman. She's done an honorable thing with her mother-in-law, so let's look out for her. And as a result of that, she becomes very successful in gathering crops on Boaz's field. So she comes home. She's got all these crops. Naomi says, where are you gleaning all those crops from? Where are you getting them from? And she says, I found a man in the city, and his name is Boaz. And Naomi says, Boaz, he's actually a distant relative of my late husband. So time goes up by and things are working out and Naomi's getting older, Ruth is getting older and she says to Ruth, you got to get married. You can't just stick around here with me. You know, my time is coming and uh, I'm going to die and you need, to, you need a covering. You need someone to take care of you when I'm gone. So Naomi decides that Ruth needs to go find a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer. So we were kind of introduced to some of these types of cultural concepts last week when we talked about the brother-in-law, but Think of a kinsman redeemer as an, like an uncle, a, a, a rich uncle. Anybody got one of those? Uh, this is a kinsman redeemer. The wealthy person in an extended family uh, was often the kinsman redeemer. When the people, the family was in trouble, that's where they'd go. They'd go to this person. And this person did not have to step up, did not have to step in and help out, but they would have the opportunity to do so. And sometimes this is, uh, kinsman or dreamer is sometimes translated as avenger, but they're the avenger, the redeemer of the family. So in order for someone to be Naomi's kinsman redeemer, they would have to marry Ruth because Naomi was too old to have children to continue the family line, and so the next option would be Ruth. So she says to Ruth, you need to go ask Boaz to marry you, to be your kinsman redeemer, to be our kinsman redeemer. I need you to ask him. So Ruth goes to Boaz knowing he could probably say no, he would probably say no. Why would he say no to me, this Moabite woman? Why would he marry me, bring my liabilities, bring my family history? He doesn't know what type of family he's marrying into. And we all know that when you marry somebody, you don't only marry them, their story becomes your story. So, um, I've been married for 15 and a half years. Uh, If I go back into my story, you know, Lisa and I were dating in college, and um, 
You know, I didn't have a lot to my name, to my family name, but uh, I knew that I loved her, I wanted to marry her, and that was enough, right? Uh, so I went and bought a ring. You know, that's what you do when you love somebody, you want to marry them, you go buy a ring. At least it was in Calgary. I was in, uh, in Saskatchewan, in a town where everybody knows my name. And then uh, I go, I buy a ring, and I drive to... Calgary uh, with Lisa's sister Tracy and we she helps me kind of set up the whole thing and coordinate this thing and I go and I propose to Lisa with the ring that I bought and uh, she says yes which is awesome and and I say let's go celebrate you know what what better place to celebrate you know I'm new to Calgary I've never been here and I I hear the Calgary Tower is the place to go Um, you can see the view of the city and so I go to the Calgary Tower and you know I I share the story, like we just got engaged. It's like, oh yeah, that's, oh, congratulations. You know, you guys want an appetizer? I was like, yeah, well, let's, you know, we got, this is a big night for us. Like, let's get an appetizer for sure. Um, so we had the appetizer, and what about the meal? What, what do you want for the meal? What's the most expensive thing on the menu? Well, I got, uh, you know, whatever it was, we got this, this very nice meal, and, you know, and then dessert comes. You want dessert? Well, of course, we just got engaged. This is a, this is a big moment in our lives. Like, I'm not withholding any expenses on this night. Um, honey, get what you want. Like, this is on me. Uh, so we get that, and then you know, at the end of the night, time comes, and uh, it's time to pay for the bill. And uh, you know, they bring me the machine to the table, and I put in my debit card, and I type in my account, my number, and it says, insufficient funds. So I, I had spent... Uh, what was left of my student loan on that ring. Uh, And she already said yes. And my story becomes her story. And my debt becomes her debt. And she didn't back up. She must have really loved me. Because she she still had a window to get out of that. And that would have been like first red flag for me. Like I'm marrying a guy that can't afford to pay for our first dinner together. Rough start. I was, uh, you know, luckily I asked the father-in-law, you know, for permission before that. So uh, we were good. So when you marry somebody, your story becomes their story. And so this is a big risk. This is a big risk for Boaz. You want to be my kinsman redeemer. You want to take on my story. Not knowing what my story is. And he says... Yes, I'll, I will do that. But there's a hitch. You've got a relative that's actually closer to you than me. Um, and so he actually gets first dibs on you and, your, and the property associated with the family, right? Because she was just basically property at this time. Um, so I have to go and see if he wants to pick up the rights, take up his responsibility, and let me go talk to him. So he goes to the city gates where uh, transactions happen at that time where they're in a public place where people could observe uh, the commitments that people made to each other. And he asked if, uh, he asked this uh, other relative who could be the kinsman redeemer if he wanted to take on the family property. And the guy says, of course, uh, that's a great asset to my family. I'll take on the property. But there's also a hitch that you need to, uh, the property comes also with a woman named Ruth that you, know, you to need to marry. And he says, I'm out. Uh, her story, I don't want that a part of my story. You can have the property. You can have Ruth. Um, and so this is what the conversation looked look, look like. Then Boaz told him, talking to the relative, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires you to marry Ruth, the Moabite w- w- widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. 
So if this man would have married Ruth, then he would have had to divide his assets uh, among her family. Remember last week we talked, we talked about primogeniture, right, and how that affects the family line. And so he looked at his property, his assets, his family, and he's like, that's just too much of a risk. That's going to mess up my family. Uh, let's just keep that separate. Uh, and so, so that's what happened there. And then it says this, uh, I can't redeem it. The family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own state. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. I can't redeem it. It's too risky. So Boaz, an honorable man, recognizes the honor in Ruth who's honored her mother-in-law. Boaz marries Ruth, takes a risk with this Moabite woman to redeem her. And this is just a beautiful story. And this could be the end of the story, except that God's, God had a promise. Not, and, it, and his story is bigger than their story. He had a promise to Israel, and God keeps his promises. And even though Israel wasn't going to cooperate, God did not back down from his promise. And so it's a beautiful micro-story, but they have a son, and they name him Obed. And there's a beautiful part in the story where Naomi, this old lady, before she dies, is holding the baby, and she's cuddling the baby, and the whole town is talking about how God has redeemed her story. They call her Naomi, not Mara, because Naomi means delight. That God actually delights in her, regardless of what happened in her life, regardless of what her perspective was, there's this point where she looks back at the end of her life and there's a beautiful redemptive moment cuddling grandchild Obed and the story reflects on how God has redeemed her story. Naomi on the other side of bitterness, God is faithful to me after all. I gave up on God. I thought God had abandoned me in my life in my old age and I realized that God has never abandoned me. And friends, this is the story of God over and over and over again in the Bible, that he never abandons us, even when we think he's abandoned us. He's always writing another story. So then Naomi dies, Boaz dies, and eventually Ruth dies. Obed grows up, gets married, and has a son as well, and Boaz names his son Jesse. Jesse has a bunch of sons. One day God speaks to the prophet Samuel and he says, I'm about to do something new in the nation of Israel. I'm going to do something that's going to have ramifications for thou thousands of years. And I've picked a king. I want you to go anoint that king. Fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there for I've selected one of his sons to be my king. Jesse, the son of Obed. Obed, the son of Boaz who took a risk on a Moabite woman named Ruth in an era where everybody thought God had abandoned them. I've chosen one of his sons to be the next king. So Samuel shows up and says to Jesse, one of your sons God has picked to be king. I mean, that's a good day. If I'm Jesse, I'm like, just pick anyone. Just, uh, you know, I get to be the dad of the king. Beautiful. So he gets his sons, lines them all up, and, uh, you know, Samuel's going through. It's like this one. You know, this one's the obvious one, the oldest one. You know, he's my special, my favorite. Uh, he's handsome. He's big. And I was like, nope. Next one, nope. Next one, no, because all through all the kids. And Sam was like, I'm sure I had the right, right address. I, I don't think I heard God wrong. Uh, do you have another son? It's like, yeah, he's out in the field, but trust me, he's, he's not the next king. Uh, you do not want him. Uh, it's like, no, I'll wait here. I'll, I'll wait till you bring him here. Let, let, me, let me see him. And so, uh, so in walks 
David into the pages of history, the second king of Israel. David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, who married the Moabite woman, Ruth, who was faithful to her mother-in-law. So years go by, and another prophet, Nathan, speaks to David on behalf of God, and he says, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. From this prophecy, the Jewish people recognized that God was going to send a Messiah, a king, the king of kings. And, the, and if there was going to be a savior of the world, if there was going to be a Messiah, if there was going to be a king of kings, then that king was going to come from the line of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, who married Ruth, the Moabite woman. And David had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son, and 25 pregnancies later... We have Jesus. Matthew 1.15, Eliezer, the son of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, and uh, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. 25 or so pregnancies later, Jesus, the son of God, the Messiah, is born on Christmas Day, and throughout his life, he would not only be referred to as the son of God, but he would also be referred to as the son of David because he was born in the city of David, in Bethlehem, the home of Naomi, who would bring a Moabite woman with her to marry Boaz, who had a son, who had a son, who had a son. And that's how Boaz actually saved Christmas for all of us. <laughs> so centuries later, after Boaz and Ruth, we know the Christmas story, another couple was on the streets of Bethlehem who didn't have anything to their name, looking for a home, wondering if they were going to be accepted, weary and desperate for someone to help them, to show them kindness, and they found a humble stable. And on that night, a teenage girl gave birth to the Son of God, the Son of David, Jesus Christ. 33 years after that night, that Christmas night, we see that this son grew up to become a man, and he's hanging on a cross a few miles from those Bethlehem streets. And we see this in Isaiah, in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah says, I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And in that moment, in that weekend when Jesus would be crucified, and three days later he would rise again, we recognize that Ruth's story is not that much different than ours, that Jesus is our Redeemer our kinsman redeemer. The son of God who because of his death and resurrection brought power over death and invites us to full life today and forever. This is the ultimate redemption. And our story is no different than Ruth's. We're stuck. We're needing someone to redeem us. We're, we're needing someone to give us legacy. We're needing someone to actually write a better story than the one that we're writing with our lives. And Jesus shows up and he says, I'll marry you. I'll take that risk. You know, how crazy would it be if Ruth had said, no way. Like, Boaz, no way. I don't, you know, Naomi wants me to marry you. You know, you'll provide me all this stuff. You'll provide me security. You'll provide me life. You'll provide me protection. And, you know, I don't want that. You know, we say, you're crazy. Why would you do that in that culture, in that time? You have insufficient funds. 
and you need someone to share their story with you. Amen? And so this is where we are. And in fact, the Bible uses the, the imagery of bride and bridegroom over and over again to describe the relationship between God and his people. But Jesus is the bridegroom. And he says, I want my story to be your story. And the beautiful thing about God is no matter what insufficient funds you're bringing into the relationship, no matter what your story is, his story is bigger than your story, and we get to share his story in our lives. When you marry someone, their story becomes your story. And so the invitation for all of us that Jesus continually gives us is let me be your redeemer. Do you recognize that you are actually stuck without me? Do you recognize that everything this world is searching for, hope, joy, peace, love, the things we talk about in the Advent season, everything that every human being ever wants and wishes for is actually found here? Let me redeem your story. Let me marry you. Let me covenant with you. And I don't care if you have insufficient funds I have enough. That was the invitation that God gives every one of us. I'm going to invite you to stand. As we close and sing a final song, and I would invite you just to close your eyes and reflect for a minute. And there's many of you here, some of you I know your stories and we're parts of it. But I know that I've been thankful over and over again in my life that Jesus is my redeemer, that, that my life does not have to be defined by my past. And the story of Christmas is that you know, God's waiting and wanting to write a different type of story. Uh, but will you step out and allow him to be your redeemer? So Jesus, we thank you that you are a Messiah, that you are a redeemer, that you are a name above all names that you are a king above all kings. Lord, that when we enter into relationship with you, you don't take on our story. We get to take on yours. And you get to redeem our story. And so I pray for each person here that thinks whatever's going on in their little circle is unredeemable. Uh, whichever person feels like, just call me Mara because of what's happened in their story. Lord, I pray for those who feel bitterness, who feel loss who feel grief, particularly at this time of year, God, that you would step in, redeem their story, and speak hope and joy and love and peace. That you would become our redeemer. And Lord, I pray that you would move our hearts to say yes to that and take a risk with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible talks a lot about names. And similar to, to genealogy, a name uh, gives you identity, gives you credibility. And so parents would name their kids and they would take on identity, credibility, depending on their family, depending on their story. And then we get to the Christmas story and something amazing happens. Um, God's talking to Joseph and Mary uh, and he, he, he says, I'm going to name your son. You know, maybe Joseph was going to name him Aminadab or something like that. And he's like, no, no, uh, I actually reserve the right as his heavenly father to name him. And so God names Jesus. 
God picks the name Jesus, which speaks to his credibility, his identity. And some of us, we have different names that we've named ourselves, that other people have named us. Things that speak to who we are, our credibility. And we see a glimpse of that when Naomi says, call me Mara. And I don't know if your name is Mara. You might have a different name. Uh, and you might want a new name. You want, might, might want a new identity. You, want, you might want a new start and a new beginning. And Jesus invites us to actually exchange whatever name that we have for a new name. Son of God, daughter of God. To be part of God's story, to be part of God's family. And if you have never done that before and said, hey, I, you know, I just want to be part of God's family. I want that to be the defining thing about me, my story, my life. Because I want to follow Jesus with my life. I want a new name. I want a new identity. You can do that at any point. And after service, every Sunday we have prayer teams available. Um, so no matter what's going on in your life, they would love to pray with you. Maybe you want to celebrate. There's something great having a, going on in your life and you want to celebrate with them and pray with them. Maybe um, you want to exchange a name, an old name for a new name. They would love to pray with you. Maybe you want to take a step and begin that relationship with God for the first time or come back to God. They, they would love to pray with you. And so we, we have that available every Sunday after our services just to give you an opportunity to respond uh, to what you feel like God is stirring in your hearts. So let me close in prayer. We have starting, starting point week two happening after service. We invite you to that if you haven't done it yet. So God, we thank you that you give us a new name, that you redeem us, that you give us new beginnings, and that our stories don't define us, but your story does. And so we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Christmas story. We thank you that, that you came to earth as a human being and died a criminal's death on the cross, but that didn't hold you, that didn't keep you. You rose three days later and said to us, look, I have power over death. I have power over everything. I'm the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And you invite us to allow you to write our story. And so we want to say yes to that. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming. Have a great week.